0: Well, hello, gentlemen, and I use that term very loosely with the both of you. It's good to be back uh, on another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Always good to see you guys. Uh, I know that uh, you guys are in your respective offices, but John, you're going to be traveling. Todd, you're going to be underground, and who knows (laughs) what I'm going to be doing. So uh, um, before we go blasting off, of course, we always have uh, some good subjects to talk about this week we have a hot topic in the news with regard to Delta Airlines being the last airline to drop the college requirement for pilots. And I think that's created a little bit of controversy in the industry, especially amongst uh, the larger uh, established flight schools and universities and colleges that offer an aviation program. So I want to get All of our perspectives, because I have my own thoughts and I'm concerned about it, but uh, I wanted to get some ideas from uh, both of you, especially you, John, with regard to uh, the fact that, you know, aviation maintenance techs, that's more of a trade school specialty than a college specialty, if you will, even though the Embry Riddles and the UNDs and others do offer a maintenance tech program, Um, is a college degree really needed for flying an airplane?
2: Well, I certainly, uh, I actually bounce both ways on that, All right? So the, the industry as we know it right now was built on a lot of pilots that did not have college educations. And uh, we've seen accidents involving both. So it's, it, it's not a clear cut line back and forth. So there are people that have their wits about them that haven't gone to college but certainly can handle the job and handle the, the mental pieces of the job and care enough about the job to make sure they know all the facets of more than just turning the wheels. And uh, there's pilots that went to college and not went to college. They just go out there to fly and they disregard all the rest.
0: So it's, it's like society. It's a mixed bag. But you know, for a long time, you know, the airlines did require uh, formal education, and of course, a lot of the flight schools, especially the one that I graduated with, uh, from Embry Riddle, is uh, really banked their whole education program and curriculum around not only giving flight training or even maintenance tech training, but offering as well a degree that goes with that program. And so now the question is, when you have all of these flight schools or, you know, universities, colleges, that that is the the focal point of their particular college programs. Now the airlines go, we don't need a college degree. What does that do for those flight schools, those universities and colleges that have these flight programs? What's that going to do? Because you're going to have students go, why should I spend two hundred thousand dollars going to Embry-Riddle? to get a degree and fly my way through college, when
3: now I don't need it. Here is where it's kind of surprising to many people who are not inside the industry like we are. Uh, There never was a requirement at the federal level that someone has to have a college degree or a junior college degree or uh, anything other than the requirements to be a pilot, which is experience, et cetera, et cetera. And now, without going back into history too much, about 40 years ago, the airlines were uh, regulated to the point that there was a heavy demand for air travel, but a limited number of slots. So the airlines had the luxury of saying, look, we're only going to have so many pilots. We can afford to have high standards. There's a market where we have a limited number of slots. There's a huge amount of people with the capability. Let's fast forward. We have a whole different situation now across the country and around the world. There's a demand for pilots that hasn't been there before. So from the Hardcore accounting point of view, if you're an operator and you can have somebody with a, uh, let's say, say, a cheaper price to be an employee, and you can do so not violate the regulations, you can do so and not scare away your customers, there is the incentive. Now, for us inside the industry who've been steeped in this for the last several decades, it's a big jump to think that, you know, this assumption that we had that your average airline pilot would have a certain level of maturity, a certain level of socialization that comes from, let's say being a former military pilot or being a college graduate or being someone who had some sort of maturation process to become a decision-making adult. Now, as many of you know, especially if you uh, have children who drive, a 16-year-old can have a driver's license, but a 16-year-old doesn't have the decision-making capability of a 25-year-old or even an 18-year-old. And you would much rather have your child become much more mature before they drive, but of course, myself included, I wanted to drive on day one. I knew intellectually, I didn't have the kind of, you know, decision-making powers of my parents, but I also knew emotionally I wanted to drive. So yes, I don't blame pilots who want to fly even without a college degree, nor do I blame the airlines for wanting to do this. Question is, do people like us in the industry, the people who buy the tickets, are they going to find this acceptable?
0: Well, you know, the, the, you bring up several points, Todd, one, you know, you can get a pilot certificate, you know, you start flying. I started flying early, 15, 16 years old. You get a pilot certificate at 17, that is powered flight and get a glider's license in a year, a year earlier, um, you know, and they go, well, if you know, a kid can get a pilot certificate that makes him mature. Not necessarily. Trust me. Well, I thought I was mature when I was in high school, especially flying airplanes and driving cars and that kind of stuff. That maturity was something a little different. We have the highest expectations that if someone is going to sit in the front end of an airplane and get paid to fly people in boxes from point A to point B, you want the highest quality person or persons in that cockpit making decisions because they are life-threatening or life-saving decisions that those pilots are going to make. You want the best qualified person with the highest qualifications, with the highest maturity levels, or at least professional standards, if you will, making those decisions. I guarantee if you put an 18, 19, 20-year-old in the front end of a 737 and people getting on that airplane look up front and they go, that's just a kid flying. I don't know if they are going to have the same level of confidence of that of a gray hair guy, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s sitting up there and they have more confidence in them. That's the perception. And in fact, John and I talked about uh, a, a young lady who did a research project about that. Who looks the part of a pilot? Well, looking the part doesn't matter. Because when it comes to, uh, you know, making decisions, I don't care if you look the part of a pilot, I want you to make the right decisions as a pilot, because I don't have any control. I have to trust you, the pilot, to make the proper decisions and not put yourself and us in a position of jeopardy. And I think that, you know, what you were talking about does a college degree of any kind, but presumably uh, and and more importantly, an aviation college degree, one create a better qualified and mature pilot with at least professional standards already ingrained in them, kind of like college football, if you will. They always say some of these college quarterbacks are pro ready why because they're already in a professional type, uh, scheme for offensive, you know, schemes. Some of them aren't, and they end up getting drafted and sitting on the bench two, three, four years, learning the NFL way, if you will, or the professional way the same here. Yes. You don't have a college degree. Yes. You meet all the qualifications of an ATP, you get your ATP, but what kind of experience, what kind of maturity level, what kind of professionalism have you ingrained going to some sort of outside school. And when we talk about, quote, mom and pop flight schools, not all flight schools are created equal. There are some that, you know, you go, you learn enough to get a pilot certificate and you're on your way. You're not getting all of the good stuff that you would typically get in a college type environment that helps you add to that maturity and that professionalism. And I know, John, that, you know, you talk to the folks down at Ember riddle um, all the time. And, uh, and I'm just questioning whether or not those kinds of, of schools now are, are going to lose. I mean, it's obvious that they're going to lose a lot of students because people are going to go, I don't need a college degree. I'm not going to spend that money. I'm not going to go into hoc $250,000 when I don't need to. Well, we've got to see the impact of this on the hiring
2: spree. That's one, one point I'd like to make. The other is, yes, I've been talking to, to uh Emory riddle's folks including management and uh, they're concerned about it because we're now going to have a, a cadre of pilots if if in fact they hire a whole bunch of these type of people uh that don't have the safety uh system i'll call it a safety system it's not really what typically called safety system but they don't have that ingrained in their head they don't have more knowledge of weather than a, than a scratch that you normally get in a flight training organization, All right? So there's more in-depth knowledge that's imparted upon the student when you're in an institution that has 15 weeks, a couple of times a year at least, uh, to to help you understand the uh, what we call the backstories on the show, right? The backstory of the weather, the backstories of the of the weather alerts, the mids and so on, right? It's, it's You know, it's very easy to understand when you pick one up and read it. All right. But there's some interpretation that you can make to take it even further. If you fully understand the information that's on that page and it it goes on and on and on through it. So if you want to have a good experience uh, uh, with a pilot, then he needs to have the most education he has that he can get.
3: And in an argument, well, In my mind, when I heard about this uh, change, not of the regulations, but of what the airlines are doing, and from what I understand, all the major airlines in the United States have now gone over to thinking, not only thinking, but acting on the fact that you don't have to have a college degree. Let's put that aside for a second. What does a college degree do for you or the college experience do for you? doesn't matter what college, not if it's Ivy League or even junior college or community college, whatever they're calling them these days. What do you get in a college environment? A, that's relevant to aviation. You have to work in an organization. You have to understand rules and regulations. You have to understand uh, requirements and consequences if you don't meet those requirements, if you don't meet those standards. And you also have a socialization process, working with people who have a whole lot more knowledge and experience than you, but somehow you're trying to compete on the same level. Folks from various sorts of intellectual backgrounds and social backgrounds, but you have a shared set of goals whether it's getting an A, getting a degree, or going into a particular profession. If you don't have that experience, where else in society can you get that? There are a few places that had that sort of structured maturation process going on. And one of them being the military, which is something because we're all volunteer force, a fairly small percentage of people go through. Of course, we have colleges and universities. And in the modern era, we have remote colleges and universities where you may never physically be on a campus. But even with that, you still have the same sorts of um, achievement and dealing with organizations, dealing with bureaucracies and regulations that you see in aviation. Yeah, you, you're gonna be mean, a pilot. You're gonna be dealing with regulations. Big time. You
0: you develop coping skills. You develop a lot of different skills in those types of environments. The other thing that uh, that I always preach. You know, well, there's a number of things I always preach, and a lot of people always tell me you're always preaching. Well, I do preach. I preach a lot because I'm concerned about safety. I'm a safety advocate as well as both of you. The fact is, is that one, there are a lot of pilots out there that know aviation, but they don't understand aviation. And when people ask me about that, you know enough to be able to pass a check ride. I've investigated them. I know people like this who know enough to be dangerous. They can go fly an airplane, they can get it up and down in one piece, but their decision making skills are worthless. They don't have that decision-making prowess, especially where, okay, the weather looks kind of iffy. I'll just go out and try it. If it looks bad, I'll come back. Guess what? You know how many people I've investigated who made that same statement on record to a flight service station person going, you know what, I'll check it out, see how bad it is. If it's bad, I'll come back. They never come back and I end up working. So you're, you're, you're creating that decision-making skill, And that was one of the criticisms I've always had of multi-crew pilot license and some of the foreign training programs where they are training in a constant crew environment where they don't allow the individual to then develop that individualistic mindset and having to fend for themselves and and make those decisions, those critical decisions, the yay and nays, and be able to stick with a no when they know they should not say yes. So you develop a lot of those interpersonal skills. But then part two of this is plan B. Before I went to to, uh, be an accident investigator, I changed my entire career path during my internships to to be an investigator. I was going to go fly airplanes for a living. Well, I was thinking, okay, that's my plan A. I want to go be an airline pilot. What happens if I can't hold a medical certificate? What happens if I can't fly because I got hit by a bus? And I can no longer fly because I can't hold a medical certificate. I don't want to go out and work in a grocery store or work doing something else in a non-career type profession. So I got a college degree that allows me to at least have another career or stay in aviation and just change direction in a career position, not just a job. So, with a college education, that allows you to have plan B. There are pilots out there. We've talked about it on this show. We're going to talk about it in some upcoming accidents that we're going to dissect, where you have pilots that shouldn't be pilots. You have pilots who had gone into non aviation careers and then decided, hey, I'm going to come back. And then, of course, there was an accident where you got pilots who they became pilots, but they never wanted to be a pilot and were trying to leave the aviation profession and unfortunately got killed in one of their last flights. We're going to talk about an accident uh, later on about that. The fact is, is you have to have plan B and college, uh, college education gives you that plan B, I believe.
2: I, I, I lecture my students every semester, both the pilots and the air traffic controllers, to have a backup career. Take your courses so that you have something um, to fall back on. And I know of three pilots that flew for the airlines that now run the largest airports in the country. Atlanta was a former American Airlines pilot. Dallas-Fort Worth is a former United Airlines pilot. Right? These guys were flying, and they end up uh, changing careers for whatever reason. So I think JFK was another one that was in there. I forget now. Uh, and I might have even screwed that up a little bit. But in any event, they changed careers in aviation for assorted number of reasons. And they had a place to fall back to. And that's what everybody uh, in aviation that has a requirement for a medical certificate should keep in the forefront, not in the back of their mind, in the forefront of their mind of what can I do if I lose my medical? Right. There's only a limited number of jobs in the air transport uh, ATC environment uh, where you can work without having a uh, full rating, including the medical. Right? There's a, there are some jobs in, in uh, piloting in the flight departments that you can have without a full medical, but they're few and far between. And the people that get in them tend to stay there until they retire. So it's very narrow focus. I I tell them uh, make sure you take the uh, in the school that I teach in Vaughn College in New York I tell them take the FBO course management FBO airline not airline management or or, or uh, FBO management so you have a place to go back to you know aviation the most uh, it doesn't transfer sometimes the aviation skills to the industry
3: now on the one hand I feel for the folks who are Out there getting a college degree, no matter what sort of profession you want to be in, college degrees can be an expensive burden. You can come out from, especially from private universities, and not just the name brand private universities, but there are a lot of private universities out there where you can easily, the full up cost, four years could be on the order of a quarter million to a third of a million. And even if you only have student debt, that's one third or one fifth of that, you can come out of college with nearly six figures in debt. That's like a house in most parts of the country. So a young person who's thinking of an aviation career is thinking, you mean I, can have, I have a chance of not having a $50,000 burden when I start my career? I can afford to start on the regionals or a non-scheduled carrier where I'm not being paid that much because I'm not paying that much in student fees. So the upside is, it's going to cost me less money. The downside money, is people like money me- Money shouldn't be the driving
0: factor here. Money shouldn't, I mean, that's the concern I have is that you know, this perceived pilot shortage is creating now us dumbing down a standard. Why, if this is, if college wasn't so important, then why didn't they get rid of that requirement 10, 15, 20 years ago? Why did we ever create that? I think that, the, you know, at least that coming out of, with a college degree helps trap line for the airlines, a higher quality person, regardless of their skills at that point, but a higher quality person. So that's a natural trap line. And then from that, you can select the best because in aviation, with the standards and the expectations of aviation safety, we expect the best person or persons to be in the front end of those airplanes. We also expect the best persons to be underneath the wing that is in the hangar. Why? Because I want the best qualified person uh, uh, maintaining the airplane. And and John will tell you, and and it's from my perspective, that, you know, to be a maintenance technician, regardless of whether you just work on general aviation airplanes out of the back of your pickup truck, or uh, you're you're flying or operating for an airline, it's a very structured program. You do have classroom. You do have essentially a a college-type environment because it's very structured. There are high expectations. You have to demonstrate a mastery of your skills. And you then have to be proficient at that mastery of those skills. This isn't just, you know, okay, Joe, hey, you ever wanted to be a mechanic? I know you work on cars. Here's, a, here's an A&P certificate. Now you go turn a wrench on an airplane because it's kind of like a car. It doesn't work that way, just like flying.
3: And You mentioned a minute ago that there was no real pilot shortage. I agree with you because there are thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even more than that, potentially, uh, potential airline pilots out there. Who are not flying in the airlines for a variety of reasons. But I will say this, if the pay scale were to go up, you would have people moving out of retirement or out of their professions that they're in and going back into flying. So if the airlines want to have more pilots who have college degrees, simply up the ante. For whatever reason, and I have nothing against the airlines making money, this is a financial decision on their part. They know that the talent's out there. Uh, they have made a decision, perhaps a good strategic decision, perhaps bad, but a decision that it's not necessary to have that requirement. We can get quality enough at a lower price.
2: even a lower price for, for over 30 years starting in the 80s, maybe even in the late 70s uh, as we put the, the uh, commuter business together after, after 1978 when the deregulation act passed and it was like all the all the entry in the airlines now people airlines could fly wherever they want, whatever they want and charge whatever they wanted. And uh, we had a lot of carriers, just like Braniff. Many people, of many, I, probably most of our audience doesn't even remember Braniff, but Braniff was a Texas-based airline and saw this deregulation as a great uh, opportunity to become a big airline. They were a medium-sized airline. They expanded all over the place and, uh, and they tried to eat the apple in one big bite and they choked on it. and went bankrupt. But at the same time, what was going on was a lot of transferring of uh, low frequency runs uh, to commuter airlines. And in, in the uh, 80s and up to the 90s, we had all these little airplanes flying some of the routes for the majors. And they were crashing like crazy because who did they have in the cockpit of those airplanes? Young, inexperienced pilots just trying to build time. And it all came to a head in, uh, in the middle 90s. Uh, when, uh, in fact, the MTSB, Greg, you and I both worked on the special study for that. And the recommendation was one level of safety uh, for the 121s. And that required all of these little guys, commuters, to get 121s. And they got 121s, but they still, even to this day, they're still not quite the same. There's still a lot of operators, that not quite the full 121. But it still was an upgrade. It, it, it raised the standard for all these, these carriers. Uh, but now we see the airlines wanting to go uh, the other way. The standards have been raised. Uh, in the 90s, they started sending the airplanes out out of the country to be worked on because there was a loophole in the, in the, in the uh, regulations that if your airplane broke out down outside of the country, needed maintenance outside of the country, uh, you could do it. Well, they drove a truck through that loophole and uh, drove an airplane through it. And now you can bring your airplane to Costa Rica and have the, the very expensive C&D checks done on your airplane out of the country with labor rates that are, that are 20% of what they are in the United States. So you can save it. And those checks are labor intensive. So yeah. You can save a lot of money on the labor by dumbing the job down. And, and the rules in those countries are that you don't need an A&P The FAA blinked on that one, too. So uh, they've dumbed down a lot of that heavy maintenance on on aircraft uh, considerably. Now, what has that done? It's a cause and effect. Everything is a cause and effect. So now we've got a lot more pressure on line maintenance here in the U.S. after those airplanes come back because now they have to fix things that they never had to fix before. They have to troubleshoot systems uh, much deeper than they've had to before because the problems run deeper because they weren't done exactly according to the manual procedures. So there's a lot of pieces in this puzzle. But if you take two steps back and look at it, it's clear that there's a big focus on driving the costs down.
0: Yeah. And and I'm concerned that, you know, because of this perceived pilot shortage and the fact that airlines right now have airplanes parked because they don't have enough pilots in there combined with COVID. and, And again, you know, you get the sick out because of the COVID issues and everything else, uh, the airlines are strained. So now they're trying to put butts in seats. That is, they're trying to get this this pilot pool up so that uh, they don't have to deal with these issues. I'm afraid that they're not putting the best qualified or the highest level quality uh, pilot in those seats. They're just trying to occupy space, if you will. We saw this with Continental Express. Captain Renslow had no business being a captain on that Q400, but for the fact that they uh, they, they were on our financial burden, Colgan uh, was, because they had signed a commitment with Continental Express that they were going to have so many Q400s in operation. They didn't have enough qualified pilots, and they were starting to pull people off of other airplanes that had no business like Captain Renslow. They forced him through training. They gave him his, uh, his check rides and put him in the seat. He really had no business being there, and now he's flying with a fledgling co-pilot. Yeah, she had 1,200 hours and and a lot of time, supposedly 700 plus on uh, on the Q400. But you saw the outcome of those two in the same airplane in their bad collective decision making. So again, you know there there has to be a balance here, and I know that the Deltas and the Uniteds they have better training programs and better trap lines, but again. Are there going to be pilots that are slipping through the system that don't really have? And and we're going to be talking about an accident on the next show uh, involving two pilots that killed a senator (laughs) uh, up in Minnesota, where those two pilots had no business being in the front end of an airplane. Um, The captain had a lot of issues in his background, as well as the first officer. And the question is, how did they get into the system? How did they get to be, quote, professional pilots? with their sorted backgrounds. And so again, um, when we're talking about the highest levels of safety, because that's the expectation, not only of the feds, us as safety advocates, but the flying public, and that is, I want the best quality person or persons up there. And so how, how are the airlines going to do that? And at least, you know, coming out of a university that has a specific aviation training program, a lot of those aviation training programs in the colleges and universities, they've already vetted those students because of just natural progression. These kids are, are going through school. And, and one of the kids that we had on our show when John and I were down at Embry-Riddle, um, and it, it's a student that I mentor, uh, you know, Tony did all of his flying off campus at a local flight school before he went down to Embry-Riddle. He got back, he went down to Embry-Riddle. He thought that all of his flying time would then uh, be credited towards his degree. Embry-Riddle basically made him take his whole private pilot course over again. While at the time when Tony was doing that, it was a concern both financially and mentally because he had already progressed to his checkride stage and then gets to Embry-Riddle and they say, "Now we want you to take the course over again when i talked to him recently he's now a, he's working on his commercial um, he passed his instrument and his of course private certificate he said i'm glad that i had to go back through it at emory riddle because he learned so much more going through that kind of structured program than he ever learned just flying in a uh, in a mom and pop flight school if you will a uh, you know just small flight school here in colorado he learned the background. He got that in-depth knowledge, that understanding at Embry-Riddle that he didn't get flying off campus. So those are the kinds of tangible things um, and intangible things in some cases that make that high quality pilot that we have the expectations who are
3: going to operate at the highest levels of aviation safety. And what you said that brings to mind uh, something we talked about off camera, that all airline Programs to ascend new pilots are not created equal. You have some airlines that have ab initio programs where, from day one, they're flying in an airline environment, airline rules, airline culture, the nuances of what it takes to fly in that particular environment. You have other operators, I'm sure, will make sure that they are qualified to fly the aircraft. But as far as the other things, uh, the decision making maturity, the aeronautical decision making sort of things that are off the agenda, they may not get that. And they may not get it through the course of working for especially these smaller carriers. So yes, it's possible to have someone without a college degree come into an airline, get trained upright so that the differences between them and a college graduate is not that great. But it's also likely that there are many operators who are not going to take that extra step. And I fear for what the consequences will be. No question. Well, I think we've kicked this football around uh, at
2: least three or four times yeah, So we're going to have to wait and see since we can't, uh, ma- we can't wave, wave a magic wand and, and fix it. We're going to have to wait and see what kind of impact it has and what's the experience. That, uh, and we'll get that from some of the flight schools and some of the FAA people when they do their uh, check rides and so on.
0: So, so my friends, Todd, any closing remarks before I turn it over to the master for the,
3: the final words? Well, as you said, he is the master. And although I have experience in aviation, when it comes to issues like this, the maturity of systems and the people in those systems, no one in this uh, business I trust more than John. So, John, take it away.
2: All right. So, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is the effect on some of this on the insurance rate. And fortunately, our sponsor, Vemco, doesn't insure the big airlines, so they're not going to be impacted uh, by any of this. But I will say what I always say. Given the pandemic, and if you want to go flying, do a good job of preparing for the flight. And that includes before you even leave your house. Uh, Do a good plan. When you get to the airport, refresh that plan. When you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight. I was just working on my list of pre-flight issues uh to bring up when we do that podcast pretty soon i just was doing that over the weekend and if you do go flying and you haven't flown for a while get somebody who fly with you that has he doesn't have to be an instructor but just have a second set of eyes somebody that's more recently current and then please fly safely
1: to listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879 Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.